Welcome back to a Rocky Start Podcast. I'm Brian Argot. On this episode of Rocky Start Podcast, I'm bringing on the senior NBA writer over at Sports Illustrated. He's also the co-host of the Crossover Podcast with his good pal, Chris Mannix. That's right, I'm bringing on Howard Beck. Howard Beck is a longtime NBA writer. He has over 25 years of experience covering the NBA. I'm super stoked to have him on the podcast. We talk about tips on how to break into uh, writing, getting into the industry and covering sports. And we talk basketball at the end of the show. I really enjoyed this one with Howard Beck and I hope you guys all do as well. I welcome with me here, the man, the myth, the legend, the guy with over 25 years of NBA experience here with me on the podcast, Mr. Howard Beck. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? Thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm not sure if I can live up to uh, the myth or the legend part of it. Uh, <laughs> the man part um, says so, I think, on my identification, my passport. So I think we're good on that one. <laughs> well, no, I, I really appreciate you having me on the, or having uh, to come on to the show. Uh, it's, tr- it's tremendous to have you on. And I, I say the man, the myth, because, I mean, man, you – being in the NBA for over 25 years uh, and having all the experience you do, covered the Lakers. Uh, now you are working at your dream job over at uh, SI. Started back there in 2020. Um, I kind of want to start there, actually, if you don't mind. Um, sure. How, how, I know you worked in basketball for a long time. We'll definitely go back to the beginning of your journey. But uh, how was it like getting your dream job over at Sports Illustrated? Uh, it's still sometimes a little surreal. In fact, I just had, um, a box, a shipment arrive a couple days ago of a new book for illustrated. It's a, uh, this is going to sound like a blog, which I guess but there's a point behind it. That is not commercial. Um, illustrated commissioned a book, uh, in concert with triumph books. It is a, uh, 75th anniversary type thing about the Lakers. Uh, it's called uh, The Greatest Show on Earth, and the compilation of, I don't know, a couple dozen stories from SI from over the decades, 60s through the present. And the reason I bring that up is because I got this shipment of books uh, because they asked me to write the foreword. And so now my name is on the front of this book. I didn't write the book. I didn't pick the story. I just wrote the foreword, although one of my pieces from uh, a couple of years ago about Kobe is actually in it as well. And... I, it, it was just such an, a, a, a wild, cool, amazing moment opening this box and pulling out these these books that SI is selling with the SI, you know, uh, masthead that, that you know, um, to me, legendary across the top, forward by Howard Beck on the cover there. And it's Sports Illustrated and it's the and it's the Lakers and it's a, and it's a shot of Shaq. And it's actually the shot that was captured of them when the Shaq's arms uh, when they won the first oh, yeah. championship in 2000 against the Pacers. And of course I covered that for the LA daily news. So not only um, is this my, you know, this, it's just such an honor to have written the forward, have my name on the cover of this book that uh, hopefully will, will sell a lot of copies and that Laker fans and other fans of greatest sports enjoy, but you know, there's a, as a personal kind of emotional tie in there too. Like that was the first championship. That was my first beat was the Lakers. That's the first championship I covered was in 2000. And um, uh, no, it's just, it's just really cool. Um, you know, I started writing for SI a little less than two years ago. 
you know, it, it's mostly on the website because the magazine is now 12 months or, or um, 12 issues a year instead of the weekly that it was when I was growing up on the magazine. And it's a little harder timing wise in an NBA season to get into the magazine. But after I'd gotten my different bylines and then I finally got like the print byline, even that was a special moment. And I say this as somebody who has, as you mentioned, I've been covering the league for 25 years, covering I'm starting my 26th season. Um, I've been in the business in general for 30 and I've seen my byline in a bunch of different places. So, you know, I wrote for the New York times for nine years. Like there's some part of that where the, you know, the, the, the novelty of that wears off as it should, you do this a bazillion times. It's not a big deal anymore, but SI holds a certain place in, in my heart and in, and in my, my memory uh, sentimentally so that something like the book coming out or when I'm in the magazine itself uh, is still pretty darn cool. Yeah, no, and you, like you mentioned, you are a big fan of them growing up. So it's uh, like a dream come true for you. And uh, working, uh, I'm going to go back now, working at the Daily News, you uh, covering the, the Lakers, uh, you mentioned uh, during Kobe and Shaq's first finals. Uh, what was your favorite finals run that you covered uh, during that, uh, whether, whether it was the three-peat or um, even when uh, Kobe's uh, other two titles um, with uh, Powell? What was your yeah. favorite moment there? Um. Interesting question. I mean, I, you know, look, I covered all five of those championships that, uh, that Kobe got. And obviously the, you know, three with Shaq, the two with Powell. It's different when you cover a team as a beat writer where you're there every day than when you're not right. So I left LA in 2004 to take the job at the New York times. And so while I covered the finals and the championships that Kobe won later in um, 2009, 2010, you, you don't have the same sense of the team, right? Um, it's not the same time. You know, I was a beat writer. You're around the team every day. You're not emotionally invested because we're reporters. That's not the job. I don't care if they win or lose, but you do have a different kind of understanding and a different insight and a different, you know, even kind of a, just a tie to those teams when you're there every single day. You see all their highs and their lows. You understand the personalities. You understand the things that they've been through. Um, and you understand the emotions involved too. So while you may not be emotionally invested, I had a better sense of what it meant in that moment that Kobe jumps into Shaq 2000 yeah. or what it meant when they, when they repeated or, or even when they three-peated because there were plenty of doubts in those second two runs that they could do it again. <laughs> For that matter, there were a lot of doubts the first time. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, to answer your question, I will. You know, we've covered a ton of finals. I think I've covered 19, 20 finals or something now. Um, you know, it's different when it's a team that you've covered day in, day out, because you you have a different feel for, for what it meant. So all that said, it can't be the third Shaq and Kobe title because that was a dreadful, boring series against the Nets. And it felt like, so, you know, it was the 2-3-2 two, two back then. So they win the two yeah. in New, in, uh, in L.A. We come to New York. We, we're all staying in New York. Games are in New Jersey. It was a dismal gray uh week as i recall it was just it was <laughs> it was hot and humid and june gloom in new york and this just dreadful series that you knew was over basically after the first game and they they come out here it's 2-0 you it's eventually going to be it felt like we were in new jersey for a month it, it didn't even oh, matter man. that we were staying in new york it just <laughs> felt like we were here forever it was like just get this freaking thing over with already and then the two three two like i can't remember how many days off there were between some of those games it felt like it was four days off between every game on the in the in the, in the new jersey portion of it so anyway um 
So it's not that one. It's probably not the second one either. I mean, I, I usually default to the first one anyway, um, in just in terms of like the strongest memories. And I think a lot of that is because for me, so Kobe and Shaq come together in 96. I joined the beat in 97. They go through all the tumult of, of those first couple seasons and the lockout year and going from Del Harris to Kurt Rambis to Phil Jackson, flirting with, you know, this, you know, Dennis Rodman stint for 30 days during the lockout season in 99. There's all this crap they go through. <laughs> and when Phil is hired, people don't remember it now. So I feel like it's my job to remind people. Nobody thought, oh, well, they got Phil Jackson now. That's He's going to wave his magic wand and they're going to win a championship in year one. <laughs> like, no, they thought Phil Jackson was the important missing element, that he's the guy who could pull Shaq and Kobe together, keep them from killing each other, and make all the pieces fit really well the same way that he did in Chicago. The most out of the role players, get the, the stars to check their egos, all that stuff. But it wasn't supposed to happen in year one, <laughs> in part because there was stuff to sort out still. And the triangle offense was supposed to take so long to master and all this stuff. And the Spurs were the defending champs. The trailblazers were way deeper. Um, there were all these other teams that were in the mix. The jazz were still great. And the Lakers run off 67 wins. And even then they, in a, in a best of five first round back then where you need to win, you know, three out of five, they ended up tied two, two with the Kings in the first round as the one, eight matchup. Now they blew out the Kings in game five, if I recall, but still for a moment there, it was like, Oh crap, <laughs> going to screw this up. And then in, in the second round, they go up three Oh on the Suns, but then just get destroyed in game four. Um, and like, Oh my, here we go. They're flirting with disaster again. And nobody ever blows a three Oh and you always, you know, they're going to win it anyway, but still they were always playing with fire. And then that series against the trailblazers, one of the epic all time conference final series, which goes seven games in which they're down fifth, fourth quarter at home. And we know the rest and ends with, you know, the, the, the punctuated with the, the Kobe to Shaq lob and all that. Um, but it was always, always, always this doubt hanging over them. They're always playing with fire. They're always about the supporting cast. There are always little doubts about whether Shaq and Kobe could cooperate at, at the highest level and in the, and in the most important moments. And so, you know, and Kobe turns his ankle finals against the Pacers um, and misses a game you know, it, it it just nothing ever felt assured. So even though we think of it as a dynasty, as dominant, and then Shaq and Kobe as being two of the greatest players ever, and all these things are true, that first run was really special because one, it was their first, it was their moment. And two, while we look back and think it seemed preordained because of the talent level, it never felt assured in the moment. And just, it was a rush. Um, and... You know, there were many, many times I thought that run was going to end early. And 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 for us, I always say, like, you know, we have selfish motivations in this business. When they're done, I'm done. <laughs> I could take a lot of the summer off. So um, I'm you know perfectly happy with the team I'm covering to just, you know, go out in the conference finals or earlier. And every time you think, oh, look, looks like the season's about to end. Nope. Here they come again. So. Well, well, I got I just got to say you have great recollection of all that. <laughs> because. I was like, wow, you're you're just like going by, you know, 20 years ago and uh, the, you're just rattling it off. like The it's broad strokes. <laughs> I, I will say, Brian, I remember the broad strokes. Like if you asked about like, well, uh, you know, how did they win game two of the finals <laughs> against the, I would, couldn't tell you a damn thing. I'd have to go back and look at clips and box scores and stuff. But the broad strokes of a season, especially if it's a team that I covered because you really are living it. I'm writing 
nearly every day of the week for nine months in that case. And um, that, that, that does leave a little bit of a dent in your brain for a while. So. Wow. No, I'm, I'm going to even take you back even further now. I'm going to see how great your memory is. Uh, where, where did it all start with you in sports <laughs> to begin with? Like, uh, did you always know you wanted to be an NBA writer? Uh, no. Um, and in, in fact, it's, it's kind of a, a, you know, roundabout way that I got here on a lot of levels. So my sports fandom started with the San Francisco 49ers. So I grew up in San Jose in the Bay area, um, huge Niner fan in the eighties when, you know, my formative years as a sports fan, and that's the Joe Montana era, of course, and the Niners are a dynasty. And if I'm going to trace back my sports writing career in general, and my journalism career period to a moment, it's the catch, which, you know, if any of your listeners are too young to know, Google the catch, Google Montana <laughs> and Clark, you'll find it pretty quickly. Go, go check out the YouTube. It's a lot of fun to watch. Um, that was a huge moment. That was my, I've, I've made this analogy before. That was my Kobe lob. Like I, I thought, it, you know, in the, in the wake of the Kobe to Shaq lob in 2000 and, you know, maybe sometime after that, I can't remember when I first reflected and thought about this a little bit, but that there were kids who watching that play and thinking holy shit this is the most mind-blowing most exciting thrilling most young sports fandom right whether they were seven years old or 12 13 whatever they would see that that comeback punctuated by that lob and the way staples center exploded that night and that would be a really formative moment well for me that was the catch it was montana to clark in the 1982 nfc championship game the Niners are having this magical season. They'd always been kind of a sad sack franchise. They're having this transformative season and they're in the NFC championship game against the, the mighty Dallas Cowboys who were, you know, obviously a legendary franchise at that time. And, you know, Joe Montana is about to get sacked. He's got almost the entire Dallas defense about to just crush him. And he flings this, this pass that's too high for anybody. Dwight Clark, uh, you know, leaps, catches it on his fingertips. They win the game. They go on to win against the Bengals. And then the dynasty sprouts from there. That day, that moment, that Super Bowl, I watched with some friends. I was like 13 years old, and that was my mind-blowing moment. That was the moment that kind of like absolutely like like um, just cemented my fandom, and it got me reading the paper every day because I wanted to read the, the Sounds oh. and Mercury News. My hometown paper was on the, the was on the table every day, so I was always going to read the sports section. I was devouring all the Niners coverage, and then from there it was just reading all of it. Right. And like finding, you know, realizing that certain certain writers were my favorites, like Mark Purdy was the the columnist for the Santa's and Mercury's um, during uh, my youth and um, and uh, all the way up until a few years ago, actually, when he finally retired. And uh, I got to meet him along the way. I got to be at his retirement lunch, actually, which was like a really special thing. Um, but like it was it was moments like that. So I'm reading the paper now and now I'm reading Mark Purdy. Now I'm reading. Uh, the, you know, the, the beat writers who were covering the A's and the Giants and Raiders uh, when they were there um, and the Niners and, and everything else. And I'm my sports fandom is growing from there. And the wheels are turning in my head, too, that, oh, wow, people get paid to do this for a living. Maybe that's something I could do. And so it, it, it really is that it goes back to the catch. It goes back to those years in junior high and high school where I'm reading the, the, the Burke uh, sports section every morning. Um, and that's it. The NBA part of it was never a thought. You know, the Warriors sucked when I was a kid. So, you know, <laughs> I, none of my friends were like big Warriors fans. They were they were terrible. And they were a total afterthought in the Bay Area where it was always Raiders and Niners again until the Raiders bailed for L.A. But even then they still had a hold on the Bay Area. Raiders and Niners, A's and Giants. Sharks didn't exist yet. 
Um, Stanford and Cal were bigger than the Warriors at any given moment. Depending, it's so crazy, on, you know, to think year. that. Yeah, so the Warriors were nothing. Like, so it, they just like I went to a couple Warriors games. In fact, my first ever NBA game is a story I haven't told that often. My first ever NBA game that I was in attendance for, I was like nine years old. I won. There was a children's shoe store in San Jose. You <laughs> filled out the little thing and you dropped it in a fishbowl and they'd had a weekly drawing or something. There was a drawing to be ball boy for a day and my name got drawn. Oh, and wow. I was, was Warriors ball boy for a day when I was like nine years old. You know, I, I, I you know, swept the key during timeouts and did some. I, I think I rebounded for them during uh, pre, you know, pregame warmups and stuff. Um, but I never had But NBA was not the goal covering the nfl was the because you always want to pursue the thing that you were the biggest fan, and the nfl was was my first love as a sports fan um the the fact that i ended up covering the nba for the last 25 years <laughs> starting with the lakers in 97 uh is kind of i don't want to say it's a happy accident uh, you know things obviously happened but um it, it's not it's not like i had set out to pursue that and i think that if there's something in that um uh, you know it, it's that you don't, you know, you, you can choose the career. You can choose the path. You can set goals. Goals are good. Sometimes the career just kind of chooses you or sometimes the path chooses you. And sometimes it's just a matter of like, you know, a series of forks on the road and, and you just keep following the one that seems like the right thing at that time. You don't know where it's going to lead. Um, so I could not have predicted this. I would not have predicted this. <laughs> um, but here I am. Yeah, yeah. Are you still an uh, NFL fan to this day, or have you kind of put that aside? No, I kind of put that aside. There, I mean, there's a lot of things that have happened along the way, but I mean, one is that when you're a professional sports writer, you kind of put fandom aside in general. Like, I, I haven't had an emotional investment in any team, player, anything for a very long time, um, and I'm probably Smart better man. for it. Uh, <laughs> what's that? Smart man. <laughs> some people could, well, but some people, it's funny when I talk about this. Sometimes people. They, they feel almost sorry, like, oh, my God, because I've like I'll, I'll talk about like having like kind of killed the fan inside me. I have no emotional reaction to all these things. And they think that it's a, it's, it's it's kind of tragic, like, oh, but like sports are fun. It's like, well, yeah, but it could also be torture. And also like in the modern era, like sports fans, sometimes some of them are off the freaking rails. Like I like it, it yeah. leads to some really dark places too, fandom. So um, but no, I've, I, it, it's it's not that I can't still be thrilled um as a human being at seeing like an amazing athletic feat that happens all the time. Still, right. I can still be impressed. I can still be moved, <laughs> but I don't care at the outcome. Like I just, the win, whoever's playing they win, they lose, but I, I don't care. It's not my job to care. Um, and so part of it is that part of it is that while I was still kind of a Niner fan during my early Laker beat years, the Lakers were always playing on Sundays and it was NBC still the contract back then. There's a lot of day games. And so, it was not unusual for me to be covering a game on a Sunday afternoon instead of being able to go plant myself in front of a TV and, and, and like turn on the NFL or turn on the Niners. And then of course, over time, there's a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of things the NFL has done policy wise have just kind of turned me off to them as, as a, a league, as a business, um, the way they handled, you know, CTE has, was, was just so reprehensible. Um, a lot of other things along the way, I've just kind of, you know, and that's the thing. Like, I, I'm not really a sports fan at the stage of my life. I, I watch a ton of basketball, a ton of NBA. That's the job. That's the career. Right. I enjoy it. Um, I appreciate that I have it. But if I'm not watching the NBA, I'm not. Well, I'm probably not watching 
baseball, football, or, or, or anything else. I'm probably, you know, spending some time with my family or, uh, you know, uh, you, watching Better Call Saul or Game of Thrones or something else, you know? Oh, yeah. Better Call Saul. Great show. You, it was you got it's, I'm, I'm it's so hard. sad it's gone. I know. It's hard to replace it. Right now, like, my girlfriend and I, were, we just watched uh, Under the Banner of Heaven on Hulu. If you haven't seen that, I'd recommend it. It's with uh, Andrew, No, I'm not. Andrew Garfield, uh, Spider-Man. He's the... Uh, one of the stars okay. in it yeah and it's about the mormon church and how it kind of got started but they turned it into like a drama um that is a uh, pretty wow. trippy and uh I'd, I'd recommend that if you guys want a good show to watch <laughs> all right yeah, yeah. i'll add it, that i'll add that to the list uh right. we, we've been watching we've been watching industry and uh only murders in the building which is fun especially as a new yorker um uh yeah, we got a, We got a couple diff- different ones going, and I'm and I'm a, a fantasy nerd, so we're watching the, the the Lord of the Rings and the and the Game of Thrones uh, sequel prequels. Oh, gotcha. Uh, what was that new one? Oh, yeah, the uh, Andor is the or wait, no, that's Star oh, and, Wars. And Andor, I have not started yet. Yeah, I'll get to that too. We have we have not started that yet. But no, watching Rings of Power, which is the Lord of the Rings one, and um, House of the which is the the Game of Thrones one. So yeah. Oh, no, I I we still have yet to watch House of Dragons yet. I'm still a little bitter about the ending of the other one. Uh but oh, yeah, I we'll get, get it. around it. We'll get around <laughs> to it uh, sooner or later. Um but uh yeah, man, getting back even before you started at the, the um the Daily uh the LA Daily Times, you were a staff writer for uh, the Davis Enterprise and Ventura County Star. Uh what were you writing there? Is there in those times? Um so the Davis Enterprise, which is, you know, in Davis, California, up near Sacramento. So, you know, went to school at UC Davis, graduate. I start working there. That's, you know, 10,000 circulation paper, right? Uh, pretty small, covering mostly local sports there, um, Davis High and UC Davis. And then, you know, getting a pass to occasionally go down and, and cover a Niner game or uh, Kings, Giants, whatever we got. You know, we got passes to other stuff. But, you know, the main function of a paper that size in a town of that size is to cover the local stuff. Um and then I, I I made this jump. So after about a year and a half of that, I decided, you know what? I've had enough of sports for now. I jumped over to the news desk at the Enterprise and was covering City Hall and, and did that for a couple of years. And when I went to Ventura, that was an extension of that. I was still covering local government. And that was four or five years where I was, you know, a local government reporter, um, City Hall, city elections, politics, uh, controversies over you know land use planning and development and <laughs> tax districts and whatever all that kind of stuff going to planning commission <laughs> meetings and city council meetings and um did, did i enjoyed you, it i mean it was it was that i was gonna say did you uh not i mean you mentioned you enjoyed it but uh did you have a feeling during that time that it was that was going to be the route you were going to go down that way i thought i would stick with that yeah um when I was in college, I actually had done a similar thing. Like my first couple of years at UC Davis, I was working student paper, the California Aggie, shout out to the Aggie. Um, and I did sports the first couple of years, realized along the way that, oh, wow, you know what? I, I love this for more than just the getting a chance to go write about sports and report on sports and go to football and basketball games and stuff. I'm journalism side of this and i started attending like our editorial board meeting to discuss what editorials we're going to write and what opinions we're taking and all this kind of stuff and so my i went from having a specific goal of being a sports writer and a, a beat writer to just enjoying the the general journalism pursuit and so i switched to, to uh to the news desk at the aggie i 
because it was a small town, right? It's like, you know, that's a college town and the Aggie was a daily paper five days a week, city hall there. So I started covering city hall when I was still in college actually. And I really enjoyed it. And like city hall in Davis, because Davis is this highly, uh, um, engaged, highly politically charged town. It was like covering sports in a way, right? Because, <laughs> you know, you had, there were like good guys, bad heroes and goats and uh, always a debate about something. And and it was, it was entertaining. There were these like just really in, uh, interesting personalities who, whether on the city council itself or, you know, citizen activist types who um, had turned themselves into kind of public figures in their own right. It was entertaining. Like it was, it was fun. Like I could, I could do some fun writing about that. And so the, I, I just kind of broadened my horizons over those couple of years. And when I went to the Davis enterprise, it was back to sports again, but then I ended up again, gravitating back to news. There's some part of me that always thought like, well, sports, you know, in, in the news business or in newspapers, uh, historically, there was this uh, pejorative term of, of referring to sports as the toy department. And there was some part of me that always kind of like struggled with that a little bit. Like, well, right. is this really important in the end? You know, no, the news desk is what's important, right? That, that, that's, that's the real stuff. And so there's a part of me that always thought, well, is this, is this really the best pursuit? Is this the best use of, of my, my time and my career? Should I be doing something that matters more? And so I, I jumped to news and then I went, you know, again, so I did that twice. And then, you know, at some point along the way, people are probably sitting there going, all right, so how still, how the hell did you end up covering the Lakers? How did you live on the <laughs> NBA for 25 years? Um, but I'm in Ventura again, covering city hall, covering local government and local politics and other stuff too. Like I covered fires and I covered, you know, whatever. Um, I got a call one day from, uh, my old boss in Davis, who was now in LA at the LA daily news, Mike Anastasi, who, uh, was now sports editor of the daily news and had lost their Laker beat writer, uh, who had just jumped for paper to the Dallas morning news to cover the Mavericks a guy by the name of Mark Stein. Um, Stein, (laughs) Stein and I are now really, really good friends. I didn't know him at the time. He was, you know, he had, he had left the daily news for Dallas and I was in Ventura at the time, did not know each other at all, but that's, I directly replaced him. But so my old boss calls up, says, look, we've got this, this opening uh, to cover the Lakers. Are you interested in, in coming back to sports? Would you be interested in, in, in doing it? I actually had to think about it because I thought I had left sports behind and I really wasn't sure. And um, it was a bit of a leap and, you know, um, there's a, another lesson here again, along the way, sometimes there's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's not that it's not that it's not just over what, you know, but the, it's always a combination of both. Um, and you know, if Mike Anastasi, my boss from Davis, now at the daily news, isn't the one you know, running that sports section, I'm not getting that call, right? Nobody else probably was making that call to me. Um, but then at that point, turn it over to his his deputies and to the top editors at the paper. Like I interviewed somebody else, I did not interview with him. So to be clear in terms of like a fairness aspect of this, uh, I still had to to earn the job. I still had to send in my clips. I still had to interview with like a bunch, bunch of different people and, and not him actually said, I'm letting them make the call. I got the job. But I still, the door is not open to me if, if not for that connection. Um, and so, yeah, so I took the job clearly and, you know, the rest <laughs> is history. Um, if I couldn't hack it, I, I wouldn't have made it this far, probably. <laughs> um, well, I, I and, think you're, I think you know, you're cut was, out for it. 
I think I did okay. I think I did okay. I mean, listen, it was it was a learning curve. It was a steep learning curve. And um, look, shout out to Scott Howard Cooper, who was the LA Times beat writer covering the Lakers, who taught me a ton that first season. And then eventually, you know, he gives way to uh, Tim Kawakami and then to Tim Brown. Oh. And, and like those three guys, they were, those are were the LA Times beat writers during my time. And the Times was the bigger paper that was, was, you know, the one kind of like, you know, scratching at their uh, at their heels or something uh, in terms of just the competition between the papers and size of the papers. But those guys had a lot more experience than I did. And I learned a ton from all of them. And, and I always think of, of those years as being so uh, critical because it wasn't just that I was learning the ropes by doing it. It was like I was watching the guys who had been beat writers for much longer and picking up stuff from them. So, um but yeah, I, I figured it out, I guess. Oh uh, yeah, I, I say you did a, a great job there. Uh, you mentioned a few tips to uh, earlier. Like uh, I kind of want to uh, ask you all in one, uh, what are three tips that you would give to aspiring NBA writers and reporters or any sports writers or reporters in that fact, I guess? Yeah, I mean, um, there's a couple of standbys that I go to in this Um but, but I want to start with this one, actually. For people who are coming in now, there used to be like a, a, a kind of a set path, right? You, newspapers were the only way in for the longest time or pretty much the only way in. And when you worked at a paper, you didn't get to cheat. You, know, you you had to wait for somebody to retire or sometimes die before a beat was even open, especially like the professional sports beats, right? So you're going in, you're covering high school football, which I did, by the way, while I was at Davis, I was, I, I worked for the Sacramento union um, as a freelancer and covered a ton of prep football, prep basketball, you know, beach volleyball, all kinds of stuff just to kind of learn the ropes and um, get reps and everything else. And so people don't have to do that now because of the internet, because of blogs, because of all these different outlets that you can write for, you can even write for free and still get exposure and find different paths into this this um this field which is all great but if anybody feels like well i'm a i'm a huge nba fan and i know the game really well and i can write so therefore i'm going to do this okay that's great but covering this beat covering sports in general is never just about you know how good are you at identifying you know um this up-and-coming you know, star, uh, you know, at the college ranks, or, you know, it's not about your scouting skills and it's not about um, being able to, you know, break down coverages, like all those things kind of matter too. like writing about the game and the, and the mechanics of the game and understanding the game, all of that's fine. But you need to learn how to write and you need to learn how to report. Um, there are a lot of people who write about the NBA very well. Not all of them can report on the NBA and the skills and the techniques and just the, you know, mechanisms involved in trying to become a reporter and learn information and learning how to build relationships and build sources and build trust. And, you know, even just learning, you know, how to make phone calls. I, I don't mean <laughs> literally how to push buttons on a phone, but um, there, there's a, a, a methodology to reporting, like reporting out a story that to me is still the fundamental uh building block of this of, of this uh this um i'm still a journalist at heart not a not just a writer and so um not everybody comes in that way and again that's fine but i you're more valuable and will go further if you can report as well as you can write and if you can find the information i always said like 
I don't consider myself a basketball expert. If I'm an expert on anything, and I don't consider myself an expert on anything, but if I were, it would be on writing and reporting. That's what I do. I don't play basketball. I don't coach basketball. I write about basketball, but my skill set is about learning how to report. And I'm not the expert. I'm going to the experts. Somebody says, um, you know, you know, uh, it's, you know, should Victor Wembanyama be the number one pick in the draft? Like, obviously, he's the he's the guy everybody's hyped about for for June. I've seen a couple of video clips. I've seen some YouTube, but like, I'm going to call the scouts whose job it is, who are paid, who make their living <laughs> scouting and assessing talent. I'm not the talent scout. So I, I raise that as the the example, just because like, I don't, you know, I, I, in journalism, the idea is to know who the experts are and how to get the best information and distill it and analyze it yourself and translate it for the reader, not to necessarily be, the expert. We've got way too many people uh, self-proclaimed experts in, in, in doing punditry all the time in this business. So that's one. Wow. Um, that, that's a great piece. That's a great piece of advice. I, 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 I mean, it is to me, but I'm a little old school that way. Um, we, we do have, I think a lot of people coming in feeling like the idea or the goal is to be the expert. Um, the goal is to I be think right. it's kind of a, a fallacy. The, the goal yeah, is just the to goal be, right is to be accurate. Time, yeah. yeah. No, no, no. no. Well, I mean, goal, I mean yeah. Oh, for that. Sorry. Yeah. When, when when I say that, it's just like the first one to break the news and be right. It's like that's uh, uh, that too. <laughs> sports media, yeah. which is kind of sad. Yeah. Um. But also, like you know, there there are a lot of different roles we can play in this business, right? Um. There's you know, uh, folks who are strictly newsbreakers. There are people who are who are strictly great profile writers or feature writers. Um. People who are, you know, there's obviously beat writers who are covering these teams day to day, just churning out a ton of of, of stories um, year round. Um, there's a lot of different skill sets and a lot of different ways to specialize. And I think the best path is to try to be good at all of it and don't pigeonhole yourself and don't try to be just one thing, especially like, you know, I know there's a lot of glory in the news breaking business and people know exactly who the top people there are, but there's a only room for a couple of those because it, it's kind of a close. So uh, you should, your goal should be to be broader than that um, for most people. Um, and then the other couple of, of quick, you know, quick hits here. You'll always hear this. You got to read a lot. If you want to be a good writer, you have to read a lot and, you know, like find people who, and it could be fiction, could be nonfiction, could be sports writing, could be news writing, could be opinion writing, could be anything but find the writers who like appeal to you the most, read them a lot, kind of, you know, take a step back sometimes and, and say, well, I really loved this story. I just read about whatever. And then kind of like look at it again and see the way it was, how they drew you in, why it really um, resonated with you. Um, you know, go buy books by, you know, go buy the compilations of Frank DeFord, who was SI legend, the guy, one of the guys that I grew up reading who made me want to be a sports writer, like Frank DeFord, like his stuff is like freaking free. And so like, go, you know, buy a volume of his stuff or go to the SI vaults online, go SI vault.com and go find like Lee Jenkins and stuff from when he was covering the NBA, like just find the stuff that like really sings and you know, kind of unpack it a little bit and, and figure out, and then you can try to emulate it, right? Not copy it, but find the techniques that, 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 that make sense and try to, to, uh, to do that. Um, also, nobody's a good writer on day one. Some of us think we were, I thought I was, I wasn't like you, uh, you, like you wrote, you write something and then like you realize a couple of years later, you're like, I thought that was good. <laughs> that was crap. And then 
if if you're lucky, a couple of years later on a rolling basis, always look back a couple of years and go like, that wasn't that great. Um, and then occasionally you look back and go like, you know what? That actually was pretty good. All right. Um, you got to be your own worst critic. Uh, you got to be, you know, just self-reflective and, and realize that writing is, is kind of an evolution. Um, if you looked at my bylines and I'm not recommending it, but if you looked at my bylines from the late nineties, early two thousands covering the Lakers and you looked at what I was writing then and what I'm doing now, I, I don't be that much in common or not. I think I'm a much better writer now than I was then. And I thought I was decent then. Um, and I was definitely better then than I was, you know, in 1994 or whenever, you know, still the Davis enterprise. So it is an evolution. It, it does take a lot of reps. We all got to get a lot of bad crap, bad writing out of our system along the way. And then the last thing I'll say is this, and it kind of goes back to that thing I was saying in the first point, but you be flexible. Like if you want to be an MBA writer, um, don't think that the moment you graduate college or if, if you didn't go to college, the moment that you just picked your path and decided to, to jump in, that you need to be that on day one. Um, like it, it's okay to like, first of all, newspapers are still around and they're still a great place to get a lot of reps, work on deadline, uh, learn how to be concise with your writing because newspapers still have a finite amount of space in, in the physical paper. Um, you have to write tight, as, as we say, which means being concise. Learning to be concise is important. Um, learning to write quickly line sometimes is important. Newspapers are still the best place for that. And, you know, I'll, I'll cite Zach Lowe. Like I cited my own background, right? I cook. I covered City Hall for four or five years, covered, you know, fires and, you know, uh, police situations or whatever. Zach Lowe, as, as some people know, but a lot of people don't, NBA fans may not know, like, he covered criminal justice for several years and was writing for a lawyer magazine and wrote for a, you know, a local newspaper in Connecticut. Um, and it's part of why Zach's so great at this. It's oh. not just that he's really smart about the NBA. Zach reports his ass off because he came up the newspaper and journalism and learned that first. And those are skills you can apply to whatever you're covering. So um, if the job somebody offers you that's going to pay you and give you health benefits and a 401k is covering city hall or covering the cop beat a local paper, do it. You can still cover it later. Like it'll, it's not going anywhere. You'll get there, but you'll be a better MBA reporter if you honed some of these other skills somewhere along the way. I know that's all great pieces of advice. And, uh, I actually didn't know that about Zach Lowe. I knew that he started at Grantland, I think, uh, back with uh, when Bill Simmons was there at ESPN way back when. And I know he still works for ESPN now, Zach Lowe does. But, uh, wow, no, I didn't realize that he did that. It's kind of cool. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, plenty of others in the business, too. Um, if they didn't have a newspaper background, had, you know, something else where, you know, uh, it, it's – you'd be surprised. Um, we didn't know, nobody just jumped into the NBA, like, you know, fully formed. Um, and, and a lot of folks had, yeah, like serious reporting backgrounds first. And it, and it helps a lot because again, to my earlier point, it's not so much about us being the expert. It's about knowing who to talk to, who, who are the real experts. And we just kind of synthesize that information. Uh, great points. Uh, what, what has it meant for you to be the co-host of the crossover with uh, Chris Mannix? What does it meant to you in your um, life? Means, means, means I get to uh, admire Mannix's phenomenal hair and make a lot of jokes <laughs> about uh, all the products he uses to make us phenomenal. It's really out of jealousy because yeah, obviously I've got this receding hairline thing going and I just, I, uh, you know, I, I, I would I would love to have uh, Mannix's lush, uh, <laughs> lush hair. So, um, 
You know, uh, the podcast thing is funny. Um, so Mannix and I co-host the podcast and it's, and it's fun. Like we have a great time doing it. Um, one episode a week is the two of us. There's a second episode that and, and a guest, which I enjoy. And I started the podcast, um, thing, uh, when I was still a bleacher report where I had the full 48 podcast, that was, I was solo host and, um, it's fun doing it both ways as with a co-host or, or solo. That was another one of those things where you, when you were asking earlier about career path and I'm telling you, Hey, you, you can't things. There was not a thought in my head at any point in time, even before podcast existed that I even thought about being like a radio. Like I never, I never would have thought that this was a medium that uh, made sense to me. I, I was, you know, uh, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to write, knew I wanted to report. Okay, fine being on TV or radio or anything else and, and podcasts, which of course didn't exist until about 10 years ago, not even a thought. And, um, the opportunity was bleach report. Um, I really started to love doing it. I was, I had already started doing some radio during that time anyway, for Sirius XM for NBA radio. And, um, I, I just, I, I really just, I don't know. It's something, something clicked there. And again, another thing I was probably not very good at when I started, and I'm okay at it now, um, and just takes a lot of freaking reps. But uh, but it's fun. I think you know when you're in the business for a, a long time, there are a lot of people who'll spend their entire careers, whether newspapers, magazines, whatever, just being a reporter or writer. When I say just, I don't mean in, in a you know, uh, you know degrading way. It's just it's just like they're fine with just doing that. That's that that's satisfying. That is is um, gratifying. And it was for me also, but I do think there is something to be said for being able to kind of expand your repertoire mid-career. And um, and at least for me, that's been the case. Uh, I love the fact that I'm not just cranking out, you know, 50, 300 stories a year, which is something <laughs> I used to do. It's it's more fun to kind of mix a little bit of writing, a little bit of pop radio, maybe some video or TV along the way. Um I think being able to develop new skill sets as you go is, is really new and, and more, and more enjoyable, frankly. Oh yeah. No, it definitely, uh, you know, like you said, it brings you these extra set of skills that you might not have had before. And, uh, you, you gotta be open-minded to kind of go that way. You're like, Oh, you know, podcast, what is that? I mean, when you started back at Bleacher Report, it's like 2013 Bleacher Report was in its, mm -hmm. I was maybe second, third year as like a up and coming big media giant. I mean, I call it a media giant now because it's, it's a premier player. And uh, they were, yeah. I mean, they, they, I think they launched in 20, 2007 and I got there in 2013. So they'd been around for a little bit, but yeah, they were, you know, like they were already, they already had made a huge, um, Impact. imprint on the marketplace right like they got a lot of eyeballs um but they were still kind of on the rise turner had just bought them turner sports had just bought them that year um so yeah there was a little bit of a, of a you know of a leap of faith there for me yeah yeah and uh no it's great i mean i still watch or you know read a lot of bleacher report to today you know because it's a it's a amazing and definitely us in si has always uh, been at the forefront there uh, but yeah, I, I want to get into, let's, uh, I know we got a few uh, minutes here. I want to talk some, uh, NBA. So let's go in, into that. Sure. Uh, I, I want to start off of, you know, Boston Celtics, of course, have been in the forefront of the news. I'm sure you, you've talked a lot about this. 
one question I have for you is, uh, do you think that Ime Udoka will come back next year as the head coach of the Celtics? Anything's possible, and there's a lot we still don't know. But based on what little we know, I'd be shocked. I'd be shocked if he's coaching the Celtics again. Um, and, you know, it, it's uh, the whole situation is, is, I think, probably much more complex than we know. Um, we'll see if, if more information emerges over the months to come. But no team is going to suspend their coach for a, like that's unprecedented on its own. I've been right. again covering the league for 25 years. I've never seen this happen before. So wow. that suggests that things were fairly serious and, and and probably beyond what we know. And so if that's the case, it's hard to believe that they could bring him back. And and also you start to think about like, well, you know, they go to the final one with, you know, uh with an interim coach, how do you bring him back? back what if they won the championship and right. and you're gonna bring him back like that would all just sounds very seems very awkward um also these were in-house violations of of company policy and you know some hr uh you know rules and, and everything and, and it involves another member of the organization like everything about this is so kind of tangled and awkward i just can't see how he returns um I'm just guessing here. This is pure speculation on my part, but you know, it wouldn't surprise me if before the season's over, if they have negotiated some sort of settlement where he walks away. Um, it's, you know, I, I, like I say, this, it's, it's funny too, because people, you know, have, have raised a lot of, of questions. We don't need to get into all of that, but when you, when you ask like, well, why would the Celtics do this? Like, yeah, that's the right question. But it obviously was very serious because the, the Celtics, had just hired Emi Udoka a year ago. They gave him his first head coaching job after years of him being an up and coming, you know, you know, you know, kind of hot coach, coaching prospect. You're not lightly doing this. He he just galvanized your team and got them to the finals for the first time in, in, in 12 years. A team that had was had been knocking on the door that couldn't break through, and Udoka, at least in part, is responsible for them finally breaking through last season. You're not you're you know you're gonna do everything possible to not have to fire him or not have to suspend him for a year so the, the fact that they did suspend him for a full season uh tells you this is much more serious than than anything we've heard so at least that's what it suggests to me yeah no i think you're right and i think uh what you said is the perfect way to kind of go about it until more news comes out there's it's just hard, so hard to speculate on and i guess the only time's gonna uh play it out you know only time will tell about that i want to go out to the uh, the desert we had a uh, you know the suns are now being forced um for, uh, for sale uh but there's a few questions uh i have there uh why are the suns shopping jay crowder i that's a, that's a big question mark to me i thought he was a viable piece for that uh lineup um that was his request i understand it Jay Crowder uh, realizing, seeing the, the handwriting on the wall that Cam Johnson was going to become the starter. And I guess, uh, as you know, again, interpreting a little here that just Crowder feels he still uh, should be playing a bigger role. So um, maybe other things have fed into that. You know, there's obviously some weird dynamics going on with that team right now. Um, <laughs> you know, De DeAndre Ayton's situation is still, still well, kind of tense. That's my next um, question for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, 
I'll I'll make another just kind of educated guess here or, or you know instinct uh kind of guess here, which is when Jay Crowder gets traded and when he lands somewhere and when he is now you know available again in in some other city to discuss things, um, I will be very curious to see what he says as to what his motivations were for for wanting out. Um, I think he's still a really viable three and D guy, obviously got a lot of miles on him and, and some wear and tear, but like the, everywhere the guy goes t- teams win. Um, <laughs> and, uh, he, he's, you know, yeah, there's probably two aspects to that, but anyway, but he's, he's, a, he's still, I think a really valuable player. I think any, any of the contending teams that they can find a package, uh, to snare him, um, will do so. And, and I would expect that will happen before too long here. Maybe I should have started off with this question on the Suns. Uh, what what is going on between Aiton and uh, Monty Williams? The beef there, and is it salvageable? I, I I don't know exactly what's going on, but I will say that um, it's not a good sign when the first day of training camp, um, a player who has had an issue with the coach is saying, "And we have not talked." Like that was shocking to me. I mean, Monty Williams is the reigning coach of the year. Uh, he was the runner-up a year ago and, and and was coach of the year in the coaches' vote. So here's a guy who is obviously successful, very highly regarded, uh, and it's among his his uh, you know best skills as a coach. Um, in addition to the X's and O's part of it, Monty is regarded as a great communicator. It's part of what has made him was what made him great as an assistant, and it's what made, it's what made him uh, successful as a head coach in Phoenix. So that being the case, it's it's kind of baffling that that he has let this kind of hang out there and then kind of was very dismissive of it when the media asked him about it after DeAndre Ayton spilled that they have not spoken. Um, I don't know how to explain all that. I just know it's not a great sign for that team. And there was already, you know, look, Ayton alone, there's already concern because they didn't go all out to keep him. They didn't proactively sign him. They waited for him to sign an offer sheet with the Pacers and then matched it. So he's probably not in a great frame of mind i think we should you know be keeping an eye on him as a as a trade possibility once he's trade eligible later in the season um but i i think i feel like that both the tension with money and the tension with the franchise itself for not locking him up sooner is just kind of hanging over them a bit yeah yeah definitely and uh them if they are sold uh you know sometime in the near near future it, it would be an interesting um dynamic to see if uh he would stay or um maybe what a possible free agents might actually want to come to the Suns because they might be an attractive or at least a, a, a landing spot for some players. Um, and I got a few few other things uh, to throw at you. Uh, who's the most underrated player in the NBA in your mind? Ooh, most underrated. Yeah. Um, so, not a question I had th- thought about for a bit so i'll, I'll, have, the to, top of your I'll head. have to to um i'm i'm just like scrolling through the standings to see like team and player that that immediately pops out this is like a rorschach test or something where i'm just waiting for for something to strike <laughs> um i i don't i don't have like one obvious answer there i i'll i'll just say this as i'm scrolling through and and looking um i've always felt like jimmy butler is like the most unique superstar in today's nba because he doesn't profile as a superstar and he is perpetually underrated and like we don't know what to do with jimmy because he doesn't have the greatest three point shot in an era dominated by three pointer uh, three point shooting 
He's not the most athletic. Um, he's not, you know, a, a unicorn type. Uh, he's not, you know, se- you know, seven feet and long with with ball handling skills. There's like no one thing you could look at Jimmy Butler and say like he is the best in the league at X. Um, all the dude does is win. <laughs> Just kicks people's butts and wins, and and infuses everyone with a certain uh, attitude and edge, um, and plays his ass off. And obviously, look, he's elite defensively, uh, but we don't reward that necessarily as the public very often in the NBA, we we gravitate toward and celebrate the guys who put a lot of points on the board, either by dunking real hard or shooting from real far. And Jimmy doesn't do any of that. So in a way, uh, because he's like, he does not fit the prototype of an NBA superstar. He's, he's always kind of one of my favorites to watch and, and just to, to follow because um, he, he just, he, I think he kind of defies expectations. Plus, you know, the guy was, you know, late first round pick in the first place. So yeah. he really built himself into this. Yeah, no, it's a, a great choice. Uh, one who I probably wouldn't have thought of, but uh, I actually, you made a great case for him. And then uh, last question, one crazy prediction about this season could be MVP, could be a trade, or could be a team to miss the playoffs. Uh, give me uh, one of your crazy, wacky uh, predictions for this year. Oh, um, crazy prediction. I, I didn't want to tell you about this question year. before because yeah. you, you know I want to hear at the top of your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh the the danger there is that nothing hits me in in the uh in the moment in real time here. Um, so you could like cut all the dead air as I'm staring at my <laughs> screen trying to think of something here. Um, uh. I, you know, I, I, I'm, 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 there's nothing. Here's the funny thing right now. I'll just say this. And this will be a little bit of preamble to coming up with an answer. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of volatility right now. There's, there are a handful of teams that are clearly, clearly going to be the bottom of each conference and almost no chance that they're going to defy expectations, right? You're not going to see like the Pistons suddenly pop up in the second round of the playoffs. They're not even going to make the playoffs. Like the Pistons Pacers magic. I, I I don't think there's any chance we're going to have some shocking scenario where those teams are in the plane or the playoffs, right? Like, and in the, the, the West, you know, Spurs, jazz, thunder rockets, like you, you know who the bad teams are and you know, who the good teams are. There's a cluster of plausible contenders in each conference right now. We've got more parity than we've had in a long time. And I think because of that, there's less volatility and less chance for some surprise unless you're talking about a team like the nets where if everything clicks they could go to the finals and win it all if if they continue to have all the weirdness that we've seen from them for the last several months they could implode they could trade everybody in the middle of the season who knows so there's that kind of thing um but i i guess if there's one team that i think now people are sleeping on it's the lakers <laughs> of <laughs> of all things like they finished 16 games below 500 last season Everybody's kind of already decided that LeBron's done. Um, even though the guy put up like MVP numbers last season while he was yeah. healthy and granted keeping him healthy for a full season is, is a challenge. Anthony Davis can't stay healthy. Like I get it. And I get all the doubts about Russ because I have those doubts. Uh, I, I don't, I still don't think he fits and he's still there. Um, but I also think that LeBron and healthy Anthony Davis combined with, you know, a, a, you know, passable supporting cast and that's about all i'll give them um should not be a 33 win team again 
right? They they should be in the mix. And the West has gotten much deeper. And so it's hard to break through um, in all that. I just have a hard time believing that uh, if LeBron and Anthony Davis are healthy, and I under, understand that's an if, that they're not still going to be a, a force in the West of some sort. Not predicting they're the West or even getting to the conference finals. But I think that everybody's kind of given up on them in a way that I, I think is uh, premature. Oh, yeah. I uh, I think you make some great points because some everyone's penciling them at, in at like the 10th spot. And I guess I wouldn't be shocked if they end up somewhere between seven and eight you know, along those range if they could put some uh, some uh, good runs together. Uh, I, like, I like that one a lot. Uh, Howard? Uh, is there anything else you like to say that you haven't already said? <laughs> uh, no, I think we covered it all pretty well. Uh, appreciate all the very thoughtful questions, including a few that that had me momentarily stumped. I think uh, <laughs> made me made me uh, have to think on my feet a little bit. Uh, it's the off season, so I'm not in mid season form, so it takes me a little longer to get warmed up. Plus, yeah, I've been at this a long time. I got you know I got old old joints. They need to get warmed up, uh, which you know includes my brain. So uh, no, it's it's that's appreciated thank you uh thank you for having me on and uh you know i'll, I'll plug the book again it's uh the, the the greatest show on earth uh from sports illustrated and triumph books for i know you're in la probably some uh laker fans in your midst uh out and uh obviously crossover podcast and oh the uh, si nba preview issue will be on newsstands within the next couple weeks so uh go check that out as well beautiful and i'll, I'll find the links for those so i can link it in the show notes as well howard thank you so much for your time today that was the Power Hour with Howard Beck. Uh, I love him. He's so awesome and so real. And I uh, was really happy to have him on. I love the tips that he shared. And I love his story. Starting up north in uh, San Francisco, or sorry, uh, Sacramento, making his way down to Ventura, and then uh, getting his real start over at the LA Daily News. And now he's working his dream job over at Sports Illustrated. This is what uh, perseverance is all about. Keeping your eye on the prize. And Howard is a true example of that. And I am incredibly grateful for his time here today. As I am all of you guys listening, please share this podcast with your fellow sports fans. And also do not forget to like, subscribe, and leave a rating and review. That's how the show grows. I hope you guys all have a great day. Leave everybody better than you found them. I thank you guys all for listening to the show.